listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning. We've all heard the phrase, there's more than one way to skin a cat. It means that there's more than one way to get things done. And we could say there's more one way to kind of skin or to read a passage of scripture, or for that matter, any story or psalm. That sometimes we'll hear a song or we'll hear a story and they have a meaning that we understand, but then we hear somebody else's interpretation and we think, oh, that makes sense. And it's not necessarily either or, either this interpretation or that one. It can often be both and. Throughout the history of the church, church leaders have realized this about Scripture, that it has a basic meaning, kind of something kind of laying gently on the surface of the text, a lesson to be learned, a story to be told. But then if we dig a little deeper, there's something else going on. There's some moral lesson or ethical lesson to be learned, or even deeper, something about the nature of Christ or uh, some kind of analogy that kind of helps us understand the mystery of God. So we're going to look at a passage of scripture this morning about the feeding of the 5,000. We'll look at Matthew's telling of the story. It is one of the few stories that is told in all four Gospels. And it's been told in a lot of different ways. And it's been understood in a few different ways. So let's listen to the passage of Scripture. And then I want to offer, maybe by way of example, a couple of ways in which it could be read. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, We have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate and were filled, and they took up what was left over in the broken pieces, twelve baskets full. And those who ate were about five thousand men besides women and children. Before we get into the feeding of the 5,000 and Matthew's telling of the story, maybe I'll just start with an example about how a story can be uh, read or understood in more than one way. Uh, The Wizard of Oz is a popular story and perhaps even a more popular movie. Uh, Judy Garland uh, starred in it, and it's really masterful how It starts in black and white, and she's in Kansas, and she's living on the farm with her aunt and uncle and the various farmhands that are there with her. There's that kind of uh, charlatan snake oil salesman who's kind of working in the area. And then there's the lady who's kind of threatening to take away her dog. 
But then when, after the tornado, she kind of ends up in this other world, you know, somewhere over the rainbow, and she's in the land of Oz. Now that could be read as a story about the value of home, about the value of friendships, about being content with where we are and not kind of longing for some magical place elsewhere, but realizing what we always needed, what we always wanted is, is closer at hand than we realize. In a similar vein, but with a more kind of uh, critical edge, a lot of people have read that story and understood it as a political and economic satire. Reading it that way, then, the Wicked Witch of the East and the Wicked Witch of the West kind of represent the power uh, centers of the Northeast and the West Coast, the, the money centers of New York and Boston and, and Los Angeles, on the other hand. And the Scarecrow kind of represents kind of farmers who really don't understand what's going on politically and, and what's happening, so they kind of lack a brain. Or the Tin Man represents factory workers kind of um, in the Midwest, and they, they lack a heart. They're just in there, and they're nuts and bolts, but they don't get it. And the cowardly lion represents politicians. They lack courage to, to stand up to, to the powerful. But then Dorothy kind of represents the best of the nation. She represents kind of the heart of the nation. And she's not following the, the yellow brick road, which kind of represents the gold standard to this emerald city. Well, she does follow it, but she does, she follows it and she finds out that the Wizard of Oz turns out to be nothing but a charlatan. He's just a man behind the curtain kind of moving some levers. He has no real worth and he has no real power. So in this kind of symbolic reading of that story, the yellow brick road represents the gold standard. And this is an argument against it. It kind of leads us to this place of belief, but it's not a belief in anything of real value. And instead, it's an argument for the silver standard. Now, in the novel, in the book, uh, Dorothy's slippers were silver. And so the silver was contrasted with the yellow brick or the kind of golden road. Now, when the story gets retold into a movie, her slippers are now ruby, not silver. And so once you change the color of the slippers, that particular political and economic kind of satire starts to fall apart with just the change of that one little detail. Now, I'm not arguing for one reading versus the other, uh, or maybe a reading of the novel versus kind of a different understanding of the movie. I'm just saying that there are different ways in which that story has been understood. Another example might be the Beatles song, um, Have a Little Help from My Friends. Now, when Paul McCartney sang it, a lot of people understood that to be kind of a reference to his use of drugs. Well, the story was remade. It was covered by, by Joe Crocker, and uh, that became the theme song for a TV show called uh, The Wonder Years, which is a, a sitcom about childhood and about friendship. So if you're hearing the song and you're thinking about the TV show, then that's definitely a song about good friends. 
Or if you're listening to the other song, depending on how you understand it, you might get something different from it. So when we come to this story, this story of the feeding of the 5,000, certainly there are lots of ways in which it can be read. And there are some ways of reading the story in which it has kind of political uh, implications, particularly the way that John tells the story. So as I said, this is one of the few stories told in all four Gospels. And in the Gospel of John, it, Jesus kind of feeds all these people. And then at the end, it says, let us uh, take him, Jesus, to Jerusalem and by force make him king. So the implication here is there aren't many places in Scripture where people are counted, where you take a census of, of folk. Now, Rome sometimes would take a census because they were going to tax people. And we see that in the nativity stories of Jesus. Uh, Joseph and Mary have gone to Bethlehem because that's where Joseph is from. And they're going there to be counted in the census so that Rome can then tax them. But the other times that we see people counted kind of throughout Scripture is often in the context of preparation for a military battle. We're counting how many people on this side versus how many people on that side. And it's often the uh, Israelites who have a fewer number, but then the expectation is that God is, is on their side. So to say that we have these groups now sitting around in the hillsides of Galilee, and they add up to 5,000, and in some cases it says 5,000 men in addition to kind of women and children. Well, 5,000 men, that's the size of a pretty substantial army. And if you can feed 5,000 men and their families, then you have the resources, both in terms of food and in terms of personnel, to launch uh, a military uh, conquest, to, to go to Jerusalem and to, to take back the nation uh, for God and to make Jesus the king which is explicitly what it says in John's gospel. And so we can see that these, these texts can kind of be layered. I want to suggest um, something else perhaps too. Like in this story, we see the boy, um, there is this boy, he has two fish and five loaves. And the disciples are like, there's no way we can feed all these people. And this one boy comes forward with, with a fairly small amount of food. Now, Jesus blesses the food, and they start to distribute the food. And when they're done distributing, they have a significant amount of food left over. So in this story, it says that they have 12 baskets full of bread left over. Now, 12 is a pretty symbolic number in Scripture. They're the, the 12 kind of sons of Jacob that become the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus calls uh, 12 disciples who become the, the 12 apostles. So to tell a story about the Messiah providing bread for people and there being 12 baskets full left over, that also kind of has this implication that it's not just a historical account of what happened. It's also kind of a symbolic kind of telling of the story that this was enough, not just for a small group of people, but this was enough. Literally, this man could provide for the whole nation. Mark tells an interesting story as well. He has a version of the feeding of the 5,000, which is what we have here. 
But Mark tells of another feeding story. This time, the group numbered to 4,000, and the, the leftovers added up to seven baskets full. Well, seven is also a very symbolic number. It kind of, it's a number that represents the world, that it represents kind of everyone. And so in Mark's telling of the story, he has a telling of a feeding of 5,000 with 12 baskets full, like the other gospels, which kind of says, yes, this is the Messiah and he can, he can feed us all, right? The whole nation of Israel, like all the Jews. But then he has another feeding story and there's seven baskets full. And it's like, wait, this, this one is not just going to feed the Jews. He's going to feed the world. Now, there are um, traditions that interpret this story out of Matthew that focus not on the kind of the physical miracle of two fish and five loaves being multiplied in such a way that they can feed this great multitude, but instead focus on what's going on in the hearts of people. It suggests that when Jesus blesses this food and when people see the kind of the sacrifice of this boy, that when they just start to distribute the boy's food, they're moved in their hearts and they too start to kind of to share what they have. And once they all start to share what they have, they realize in the end, they have more than enough. That their fear of scarcity is actually the mirage. That once they're all together, that God's blessings kind of can work through people. Now, for some, that might seem like an, kind of an unnecessary turn or interpretation like we're trying to demythologize the text or kind of rob it of its miraculous telling of the story. I actually suggested it once in a class at the college, and it was kind of an offhand comment. The, the, the class was actually, we were studying the Greek language, and it was a night class, and there, there was a student who kind of said, well, you know, they felt uncomfortable about even suggesting such a thing, and uh, we were hungry. And somebody said, well, I have, you know, I brought this food with me. And then someone else said, well, I, I have this. And someone else said, I had that. And before we knew it, there was food that was kind of being shared amongst the class. And there were piles of food that were kind of forming on these tables that the students were sitting around. And within the next few minutes, we had kind of all eaten and had our fill, we, you know, our hunger bug had been, had been satisfied and there was yet still more food laying there. So we, we kind of experienced what, whether or not that's the best interpretation of Matthew's text, we kind of experienced this reality. And so again, my point today is not to say there's this one particular way that I think you should read this text. But I do, I do want to say that I believe this. I believe that sometimes God does act miraculously, that God acts in a way that's so decisive that it really takes a lot of effort to even doubt what has happened. Like um, someone gets healed or some kind of provision just, just comes and it takes place. But I also know this to be true. That in our times of need, God will often work through other people 
to provide that need. Like we'll find ourselves in a tough situation, a situation that by ourselves, we couldn't possibly hope to get out of. And God moves on the heart of someone else and they do something that then provides that, that need for us. I mean, I see this quite often, really, that we pray to God and God moves, but God's agents of provision are often people that, that resources kind of come to and through uh, people, through their hands, and that's how God kind of ends up providing. And I think that, too, is really quite miraculous, that God can move on our hearts and transform them in such a way that sometimes, not just out of our abundance that we can kind of share, but sometimes that we actually sacrificially share when we don't have a lot of time to spare or we don't have a lot of resources to spare, but we feel kind of motivated by God nonetheless to, to give of ourselves, of our time, of our resources. I believe the Lord blesses that. And I believe the Lord uses that to provide and to bless other people. And I think that that is true. And I'm grateful for it. Um, I once heard, I was in a class and, and Rowan Williams was teaching the class. And he was referencing the theologian Vladimir Lasky. And he said that Lasky was once asked the, the kind of question, it's one of those conundrums that, that people like to ask, if God is all-powerful, can God create a rock so large that then he can't pick up? And Lasky kind of responds, well, he already has. It's the human heart. It's this idea that that changing someone's heart might be the most kind of difficult thing to do. It certainly can't be done by force. Like I might be able to exert a certain amount of force on my children to get them to do something or say something, but to actually change their hearts as opposed to just kind of changing their behavior. Like the government can have laws or uh, an employer might have rules or a company have policies and their consequences, of course, both good and bad for following these things or for not following these things. But that's all pretty external. The actual change of someone's heart is a, is a pretty miraculous thing. And I see that God often does this not by exerting power, but by showing love. By, by sacrificially giving of himself so that when we follow God's example in that regard and we sacrificially give, that, that God's spirit kind of works in and through that, that it's not that our work alone can possibly accomplish the establishment of the kingdom of God, but it's not that our work is, is meaningless. God kind of picks it up and mixes it in and uses it uh, through his grace and mercy to be part of what's happening. So we can be grateful 
grateful for that, that when we do give, when we give of ourselves, of our time, of our treasure, of our talents, that that is evidence of the act of God, the Spirit of God, working in us and then through us to accomplish what God wants to do, which is the coming of the kingdom, which is the good news that Jesus preached. And so let me encourage you. Let me encourage you to be attentive that when you see someone else giving sacrificially, like this boy who gave his two fish and his five loaves, let's, let's be open to that. I mean, we, we read the, uh, Ron read the um, poem earlier uh, from Shel Silverstein about the little kid who didn't quite understand that, that um, $1 was more valuable than two quarters or that two quarters was more valuable than three dimes. I think sometimes we run the risk of being like that child who doesn't quite understand. We think we get it when we expect God to just kind of swoop in miraculously and do something without any expectation that the work we do or the obedience that we live with is somehow part of what God uses to get his work done. And again, I'm not in any way detracting from uh, the work that God, that God does that is beyond us, right? I mean, it is God who saves. It is God who heals. It is God who transforms. And it is even when we are doing things, I think it is God who is who is motivating us and kind of transforming us and, and wooing us to behave in such a way. I think God is active in all those good things. And I just, again, want us to be aware of that, that when we see someone doing these kind of sacrificial things, may it motivate us to also participate in such a way so that the hungry can be fed, so that the strangers can be welcomed, so that the, the lonely can, can have company and friends and family, which is why we fellowship. It's, it's why we gather. It's why we, we participate in, in corporate worship. And it's one of those things that I believe we practice as we come to the table, that coming to the table of the Lord is an individual event in the sense that I'm there individually, personally, and I'm receiving God's grace and God's forgiveness. But it's also a corporate event because we're coming there with one another. And it's a practice, hopefully, that can remind us of these things, that we have the provision of the Lord that the food that we have comes from natural resources that we didn't produce. And the work that we do to change wheat into bread or uh, grapes into wine is, is work then that's offered in sacrifice back to the Lord. That's a beautiful part of the communion table. It's not just, you know, wheat and grapes. It's bread and wine. It takes some human work to create those elements. 
But then as we offer them to God, it is God's spirit that comes and transforms those elements into the body and blood of Christ so that when we receive them, we might become the body of Christ. It's, it's that kind of collective participation that I really believe is at the heart of the Christian faith. Not just something we think, not just something we do, not just who we are, but a mixture of all of that. It's who we are and it's what we do. It's what we think and say. And all of that works together for us to live this kind of faithful Christian life. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.